praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes the grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of a horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars on your gate and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his word to the earth. His word runs swiftly. Praise the Lord. Beautiful passage to introduce our topic today. We've been in a series of tough questions um, and appreciate you all studying along with us. And I want to begin just by telling a a funny story that hopefully will introduce the topic a little bit. Uh, When my my wife and I had begun dating, um, she said one of the things you got to do is come down to where she was going to college and watch a football game. And so I went down and we watched an, an OSU football game. And it just so happened that that Saturday they were playing the Missouri Tigers. And I grew up in Missouri, so rooted for Missouri. But you're in a real predicament when the woman you're chasing is rooting for OSU and you go to the game with her. So what do you do? Well, I did what any good Mizzou fan would do. When OSU was introduced, I stood. And when they scored, I clapped. But when Missouri scored on the inside, I roared. But on the outside, I just stood and smiled. And, and it wasn't until later that, I, that she asked me, were you really rooting for OSU? And I said, well, no, I was rooting for Mizzou. I had to. And uh, so apparently I faked it quite well. And, you, and I might say, what would you call that? And some of you would say, I call that smart. And I agree with you. I'm sticking with that one. But you also might call it something else, kind of a a worse word, hypocrite. That's what a hypocrite is, who pretends one thing, but they do something else. And when you're dating somebody and go to a football game, it probably doesn't matter. But in real life, it matters a lot. Some of you are here today only because you've overcome some hypocrites in your life that actually made it difficult for you to come to the gospel. Uh, Some of you, uh, at one point in your life said, "I I am done with God, I'm done with church because of this person. I I believe that one of the largest unreached groups of people, when I say unchurched groups of people in our community, are people who used to go to church at some point. A lot of folks in this community maybe went, you know, Christmas and Easter when they were kids and that was it. But there's another group of people who maybe went a little bit more than that. And something happened that they said, you know what, I'm done with the church thing. And I'm done with God. And if the godly person that I saw 
who is like that is a reflection of God. I don't want anything to do with God. And I, and I get it. understand sometimes that's just a complete cop-out answer for people who want to do their own foolish things and they want to blame somebody else. And ultimately, God is always saying, hey, look at me. I hope that you see me through my people. But if someone is a mess up, don't judge me by them. You know? At the same time, I think as Christians, if you are a follower of Christ, we owe it to the Lord, we owe it to ourselves, and we certainly owe it to the people around us to sometimes take a real hard look at ourselves and say, am I actually helping people see the true God? Or am I an obstacle? And one of the biggest ways that we can be an obstacle is to proclaim one thing on Sundays and to live another way the rest of the days of the week. So today's tough question is a big one, and it's an important one that we all have to deal with. And the question is this, how can I live out my faith on the weekdays? And I want to just begin by acknowledging it will be tough to live out our faith on the weekdays. There will be some tough days, right? Can we just begin with that? It's difficult sometimes to live out our faith in everyday life when we're not just here together or when the small group just isn't at your house or, you know, you aren't at VBS week. When the rest of life happens, it can be pretty difficult. Sometimes we could attribute it to tiredness or laziness, stress, negative peer pressure, you know, bad company corrupts good character. But from where do these temptations ultimately come? If ever Jesus had a Sunday morning moment, you know, kind of a spiritual high kind of moment, it was probably when John the Baptist baptized him. It was really kind of the initiation of his ministry. And if you remember ever reading that story, uh, if you've ever heard about it, um, what happened was as Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, of course, he wasn't baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He had no sins. Uh, but still in this moment where it would initiate his ministry, all of these things happened, including the voice of God the Father booming down to him, saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That's what every child hopes their father will say of them. It's this beautiful, affirming moment, which may surprise you where we find Jesus right after this. Right after this, do you remember where we find Jesus? If, if you look, go from Matthew, and you're turning over from like three to four, and you're like, whoa, it was this great Sunday morning moment, and now he's in the wilderness being tempted. It's like this great spiritual high to this great struggle spiritually. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've had this great Sunday, and 24 hours later, you find yourself in a Monday, and you are in this great struggle of faith. Or you are living a life that you realize, oh my goodness, that is so far removed from what I thought I believed on Sunday, how I'm living now. And maybe a week goes by or a month goes by, but you have the spiritual high, and then you find yourself on this low and this great struggle. So ultimately, we have to realize that all of our struggles that war against us living out our faith throughout the week come from the evil one, from Satan who wants to bring us down and drag us down. And you know, maybe that moment, that spiritual high, that, that faith moment, that Sunday mo moment was real, but Satan swoops in and he says, I want to take it all away. Do you really believe that? And he begins to put things in our mind. So how do we still live out our faith? The vision statement for Highland Park is that we want to help people love God, love others, and serve together. It's pretty simple. Uh, it's based upon Scripture. When Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, love the Lord your God with everything you've got. 
And the second commandment is kind of like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So as Christians, if we follow Christ, job number one, love God. Job number two, which is connected to job number one, love other people, everyone else. And we serve together. Jesus said that I did not come to be served, but to serve. So we have, this, we have a purpose to our life. And if you want to live out your faith on the weekdays, then you don't only rely on the church to do that. When you leave on Sunday mornings, our goal every Sunday morning is that you leave loving God more. Every time that you're um, being part of a small group or a Bible class or a study, our goal is not only that you grow in your relationship with the Lord, but that you learn to love other people better and that you care for them and help them grow as well. When you are serving and through our ministry teams and volunteer and stuff in the community, our goal is that you learn to serve together. But you also have a responsibility on your own to nourish yourself and to let God nourish you. And so everyone has a responsibility to grow in their love for God. You have that responsibility. Whether you know it or not, that's part of your responsibility. We ask everyone here to just really lock into Scripture and to prayer and to growing. And Ben preached a great sermon a few weeks ago about just Bible study and, and having God's Word fill us up. Daily and daily and daily. We have to fight against that complacency so that we can grow in our love for God. And that we grow in our love for one another. We pray that every person would be part of a small group, a study, a Bible class where you can grow in your love for each other. By the way, those are all listed in your bulletin. And we really seriously want and desire, expect, hope for every person at Highland Park to be involved in something like that. And this fall offers lots of those opportunities so that anyone could be part of that because it's important to be in community with some people who will care for you and help you grow and whom you can love. You have a responsibility to them as well. And we want everyone to be involved in serving. And whether that's through a ministry team or something in the community, or in your own home, everybody ought to be involved in serving. And we want you to know this. That your work, your employment, your being at home and working there, your schooling, your education, your volunteering, your life, here's what you, I want you to know about those things. They matter. They matter deeply. Don't let it just be something you do and that you kind of skate through and say, if I can just get past this, it'll be better five years from now or ten years from now or five hours from now. What if instead we really leaned into the things that God had put in front of us. See, one of the scriptures we unpacked uh, last January, we did this series called Taking Care of Business, and we kind of talked about a theology of work. And I want to come back to just a little bit of that today as we begin the fall. It's so important that we lean into the task that God has given to us. Do you remember in the garden, we have Adam. And this is before he sinned. This is before the curse. And one of the things that God told Adam to do, was to work. And I remember when I first realized that, it surprised me. Because sometimes we think that work is part of the curse. Uh Uh-uh. Work was around before the curse. Now today, when we work, we're reminded of the curse, aren't we? Because there's no job that's perfect. And we can make a big, long list if we went around and said, tell me all the bad things about your job. And you could say, well, I've got this manager who's selfish. I've got this teacher who doesn't uh, care and doesn't teach very well. And I've got this coach um, who curses like a sailor and is mean. To, and we could list all these things that in our job, whatever our job is, where we are reminded that this world has fallen. It's not all perfect. But 
That said, that work that we're part of, that's not really the problem. In fact, God said before the curse even came, work, do something, do stuff. I have a plan for that. And so I want to just give you something really practical, applicable today. I just want to give you three things that we have to remember regardless of whether we work at home or a nine-to-five job or we're in school or we volunteer, whatever that may be. These are practical for all of us. Three commands for us. And number one is this. Provide for the world. You have to realize that your job, your volunteering, your employment, your school is part of God's provision for the world. That's how Martin Luther put it. Martin Luther kind of had this moment where the veils kind of came off and he realized that Psalm 147 that Gail read so beautifully a few moments ago fits into the larger narrative of the chapter. It's not just a chapter about all of God's blessings. It's also a chapter about how we get to be part of God's blessing to people. I don't know if you remember, but there's a, a, a moment there where um, it says, he strengthens the bars of your gates. In other words, he's saying God has protected your community. How did he strengthen the bars? Someone built them. So the person who was building the gates was part of God's provision. In Isaiah 28, it talks about how the farmer is God's provision for hungry people. The food doesn't just come from... God could have just always given us manna and had it rain down from heaven. But instead, what does he do? He uses um, Billy and Jerry's granddaughter at Whole Foods. And he uses the supplier and the truck driver to bring it there. And then all the way to the farmer who's growing this. God uses us to be his provision for people. Exodus 31 talks about um, the artist who would do the work to make the tabernacle beautiful and wonderful and awe-inspiring. See, there's this idea that if you don't work in the church or for a nonprofit, that your work doesn't matter and it can't be Christian. And nothing is further from the truth. Martin Luther said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoe, but by making a good shoe. (laughs) I love that quote. It's not putting a cross on the shoe that really helps people. It's making a good shoe so their feet don't hurt when they're on their feet working all day. That really helps people. And then if you do it in such a way as you give all of your work to the Lord, you become part of God's provision for the world. So regardless of what you do, I had lunch this week with a friend of mine. goes to church here. He's a mechanic. And he had no idea what I was preaching about this Sunday. Well, maybe he did, but he didn't let on. But we, I was talking about his job And he said, yeah, I just love working with my hands, and I love working with cars. And oftentimes, when I'm working on the cars, I think about how in Tulsa, there's not a lot of public transit options. And so people rely on their car. And I realize that in order for the employee to get to work to provide for his family, in order for the parents to be able to drive across town and pick up their kid, in order for uh, the preacher to be able to get to the hospital and pray with somebody, their car needs to work. So I think about them when I work on their cars. Don't you want that guy working on your car? Because it's not just, "Ah, I'm putting in my eight to five. It's I'm part of God's provision for this planet. So there's one or two exceptions out there. You know, um, uh, maybe if you're running some illegal ring in your backyard, you know, and having chicken fights or something. But other than that, (laughs) other than that, 
Every job can be part of God's provision for this planet. That includes your schooling, so lean into your schooling. That includes your work at home, so lean into your family. That includes your volunteering, so give your best to that. It's part of God's provision for the planet. So provide for the world and realize that you are part of God's provision. Number two, shine a light. Just because you're not here on a Sunday does not mean that the Great Commission goes away. In fact, it means that's where it kickstarts into action. That we are to shine a light. That Matthew 28, Jesus said, the Great Commission, um, make disciples of all the world, regardless of where you are. And that means at your work, at your school, where you volunteer. And I understand there's places where you don't go and set up a bucket with a loudspeaker and start yelling, um, repent right now. I, I understand that, and I'm not even asking you to do that. In fact, I would probably encourage you typically maybe to not do that, depending on where you are. But I would say this. Sometimes we use that as a cop-out as to do nothing to share the gospel. And they say, well, I saw this one guy who was really in my face. Well, if you recognized it as a guy who was in somebody's face, you're probably not in jeopardy of doing the same thing because you realize that was a little out of line. And by far, the people that I know who love the Lord are way too far on the side of shyness and embarrassment than they are on the side of being a little too brash. And I want to tell you, you have a responsibility to the Savior and a responsibility to the people in this world, in your life, who don't know Christ, to do all you can to share Christ's love with them. It it may be building trust, and eventually, though, It's going to build trust and lead to love. And it is okay and legal for you to send a card to somebody you work with that says, hey, I heard that you were having a rough time. Why don't you know that I'm praying for you? Or for you to talk to somebody as you're walking to the car, hey, I heard you talking about how much you struggled with, um, with this mass shooting that happened. Do you know my church is talking about that next Sunday? Why would God allow evil things to happen? It's okay for you to do that, and at school, and as you volunteer, it's okay for you. In fact, God commands you to be praying for those people and involved with those people, that every person is a missionary. That's you. You have that obligation, and God never lets us off the hook to carry out that commandment to our world, wherever we are. So we provide for the world as God's provision. We shine a light. Third, We commit to biblical ethics. One of the great biblical themes is justice. In other words, when people come and work for you, don't mistreat them. When you're doing business with another company, don't just step on them uh, to ruin them. Uh, When you're dealing with people, be honest with them. Don't cheat. When your taxes come, come in, don't hide them. Pay them. Do what is right. You treat people well. And the Bible says... You know, when you're, you're plowing and, and, and harvesting your fields uh, and you're picking all your crops, leave a few out there so that the foreigner who comes through will have something left. Biblical ethics. And again, God never lets us off the hook. No matter how cutthroat your business may be, God says practice biblical ethics however you can. And you do that and you commit to them in school and in work and in the home and in volunteering in all of those ways. There will, be all, there will always be opportunities to cut corners, to think, well, maybe I can get ahead a little bit. But what happens when that becomes our primary goal? Tim Keller says, uh, talking about Queen Esther, who Queen Esther came into the palace 
has this whole long story, but she becomes queen. She's working for a king that is sometimes easily manipulated, and he sends out this decree. They're going to wipe out the Jewish people. There's going to be this terrible massacre, this holocaust. And Queen Esther realizes that she has the responsibility to risk her life to stop it. The biblical ethic is risk your life to stand for what is good for people. And Keller writes, if you're unwilling to risk your place in the palace for your neighbors, the palace owns you. School owns some people. Work owns some people. Retirement owns some people. Lots of stuff can own us. Are you willing to risk your place in the palace, whatever your little palace may be, for Christ, for biblical ethics? Because when we do that, what do people see? They're like, wow, why would that person do that? That cost them, or that could have cost them their job. It could have cost them reputation. It could have cost them acing the test. You know, it could have cost them lots of things. They didn't cheat. They didn't do this or that. Biblical ethics is part of what God has called all of us to do. So we are part of God's provision for the world. We shine a light wherever we go. We commit to biblical ethics. Your work matters. Your school matters. Your volunteering matters. Your work in the home matters. It matters. I want you to hear me saying that today. I want to close just with this definition of fear. Because fear plays into this. Why is it that sometimes we put off studying or we put off the work project? Because we're afraid we can't do it. It feels overwhelming to us. So we put it off and we procrastinate and at the last second we cram and we do all this last second work and it completely wears us down and we're stressed out and when we turn it in we're like, man, I just need to escape and get away from that for until I have to cram again. And we just kind of get through this pattern of life and fear that we're going to be overwhelmed and at that point, I wonder if the palace is owning us. Psalm 147.11 says, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Well, what kind of fear is that? I heard this definition of biblical fear oh, a couple weeks ago. I want to share with you. Fear is joyful, astonished awe and wonder before God. You might want to even write that one down. Fear is joyful, astonished awe and wonder before God. That when we fear God, it's not just trembling and shaking and being scared away from him. There may be trembling and shaking, but because it's to our delight in that he loves us and that he can even, as Psalm 130 says, forgive us and the forgiveness leads to fear. Wow, God's powerful enough to forgive me? Wow, God loves me enough to forgive me? Wow, God knows all of my sins and still forgives me? And so I fear him. And it's respect and it's reverence and it's joy and it's awe. And when we put our fear and our trust in God, it helps us to have a healthy perspective of work. And ultimately, if you're killing yourself working... If, if you become a slave to school or to work, to whatever it might be, then maybe you've forgotten that your work doesn't save you. Work all you want and it can't save you. The only work that can save us is Christ's work on the cross. Because Jesus came and, and worked for us 
and died for us. He says, I know you can't earn it, so quit trying. Instead, give your life to me. I've paid the price for you. And when you do that, suddenly Christ transforms us. And instead of being a slave to work, we give our allegiance to Christ. And we have a healthy perspective of work as we do our best. We work hard. It's part of God's provision for the world. But it's not what saves us. This morning, if you need to ask for prayer about giving your life to Christ, about pledging your allegiance to him, removing it from a job or school or another person, whatever it may be, we'd love to help you with that. And even during this next song, or maybe once the service is over, we'd be glad to talk with you and to pray with you. If you want to write on your communication card for us to contact you this week and to study with you, we would really love to do that as well. If you would, would you stand and let me pray for us? And up here in the front row, some folks would be glad to pray with you if you'd like to come up even during this song. God, we thank you that you care for us, that we don't have to earn salvation. You, uh, you offer it to us. It's a gift. Thank you. Thank you for your work on the cross that draws us to you. Pray for anybody here who needs to say yes to you and quit being a slave to whatever it is that's enslaved them in their lives and accept the freedom that you give. In Jesus' name, amen.